temple, house adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come where there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said, Nation will arise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated for all by namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you knowing that you alone are the one who can fix the troubles on this earth. We come reading again that in this age there will be tumults, there will be trouble. Lord, there will be people rising up against people. And we know these are not just metaphorical truths, we see them even today. And Lord, we ask that you would come and bring healing, that you would come quickly and restore this world, that you would bring peace and justice. Lord, even now as we look at your word, may we take courage. May we have clear minds so that we might not be deceived. Lord, may we find hope in you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Stanley Grins recounts that in April 1981, James McCullough, a successful Arizona surgeon, terminated his medical practice. His wife sold her boutique, and they parted in their car with the rest of their members of their church, waiting for Christ to take them to heaven. Their leader, their pastor Bill Malpin, had told them June 21st, 1981 was the day, and they were ready. One church member, Bob Bub Bowman, noted, we're ready for the rapture. My little one sort of wants a three-reeler first, but we're ready to go. They were ready for it to come, and yet, as we know, it did not come. You know, sadly, throughout history, you can see time and again where people were told, the end is here, the end is nigh, and they want to be faithful to Christ, and yet they do things, they claim things that Scripture clearly tells us we can't know. We do not know the day or hour. 
But it's interesting, not just in the church, throughout we crave knowing about the future. We want to know what is going to happen. Fear of the future leads to panic, leads to hysteria. Don't have to think back too long to see sparse shelves in a dismal toilet paperless future. No rice, no flour or toilet paper. We panic. Or you can think back to 2017 when Hurricane Harvey came and people start panicking. Since there's a hurricane on the coast, we're going to run out of gas. We better all go get gas right now. And Texas major cities had gas shortages. Not because there actually was a lack of gas, but because we panicked. We feared the future, and the fear of the future led us to live differently today. But on the other side, sometimes our confidence in the future gives us hope. Hey, the weather forecaster said clear weather. Pack up. We're going to go to the mountains. We'll have no problem. The future is sure. We know what's going to happen. Oh, the economy, it's going to keep going up, or it was. But we can, we're safe. We know what we can do. Our thoughts of the future shape our encouragement, our hope, our fears, even today. But can we even know the future? Can a palm reader, horoscope, crystal ball give you insights? If you knew all your genetic history, would that be a sure determiner of what the rest of your life would look like? Is the past merely just going to repeat? Jesus is teaching us this morning. He's showing us that we can know the future. You know, what's going on is his disciples see this glorious temple and they think, oh, because of this, the future looks bright. And yet Jesus is going to warn them that's not going to last. But before we get into that, maybe you're just thinking, well, look, Jesus is just another person. Why should we believe him? Plenty of people have been wrong. Well, Jesus claims to know the future because he controls the future. He claimed to be God incarnate. And in fact, some of the predictions in the Bible are so clear that scholars today go, this clearly shows that this was written after the fact because they could not have written with this amount of detail beforehand. Though there's no other evidence for the books being written after the fact, the evidence of what is written is so clear, this clearly was written after these events. And yet Jesus wrote before many of the events and that we'll see have been fulfilled in other places of Scripture have been fulfilled as well. Or perhaps you think, well, okay, yes, there's been some broad prophecies, but Jesus returned the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, we could get some of the men we all respect. Now, I know some one of these is dead, but if we could get John MacArthur and John Piper and Mark Dever and R.C. Sproul and say, what does this mean? We'd hear four different answers. And say, oh, well, can't we even know? Let's just kind of like, okay, end times, move on, next chapter. Well, yes, we got to be clear. There are some differences. There are some nuances of what people think, but the Bible is very clear. And all of those men would agree on what we see this morning, four, actually three, clear truths. If you have a bulletin, you can see this on the back. First, in verses 5 through 11, Jesus is showing that in the future, earthly treasures will perish. Then in verses 12 through 19, he's saying, in the future, persecution, it will come. And then lastly, in verses 20 through 24, in the future, justice will be served. But first, we see in verses 5 through 11 that earthly treasures will perish. Jesus has just come out of the temple. Remember, this has been the week. He, this week he had gone. He had ridden in on the donkey. They were chanting, Hail, King of the Jews. They'd laid down their garments. They're ready for the return. And what does Jesus do? Well, he wept. And then he cleansed the temple. 
He responded to questions. He taught them in parables. He warned of fake spirituality. And now this day is coming to an end. And we know from Mark's gospel, he and his disciples are leaving the temple. And they go, oh, what a beautiful building. And it was a beautiful temple. In 19 BC, years before this, Herod the Great wanted to improve, wanted to beautify the temple. And he started building. And they didn't finish this construction on the temple until 67 A.D., Almost 80 years working on this. Maybe over 80 years. Quick math here. Anyways, for a long time, they're working on this. And it was a beautiful building. We know from history that some of the stones were of pure marble, 67 feet long, at least 7 feet high, and at least 9 feet long. I mean, just the engineering it would take today to get that stone in place would be incredible. And yet they had these stones on the temple. Doors and other things were covered in gold and silver. And as you approach Jerusalem from the east, it looked like a snow-covered mountain because of the white marble and the gold on it. Not only was the temple beautiful, but its decorations. Herod had given a grape cluster made of gold that was taller than a man. They had beautiful tapestries and beautiful things in it. Even the Roman historian Tacitus called the temple immensely opulent. And remember these disciples, where are they from? They're not urbanites. They're fishermen. They've come to the big city. Wow! They can't believe this is incredible. Look at this beautiful building. Maybe you've had the same experience. Maybe you went overseas, you went to Europe, and you saw a massive cathedral or a church or a a castle, and you just walk around and you go, Or maybe you've gone to one of the temples in the U.S., like Dallas Cowboy Stadium. And you walk in and you go, oh, pixel heaven. Look at how big it is. And you gush, oh, isn't it wonderful? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, it's all going to be destroyed. He doesn't go, oh, yeah, it's beautiful. He says it's all going away. In fact, it's going to be so gone that one stone won't be left upon another now obviously he's speaking in hyperbole he's saying utter destruction it is going to be gone now the disciples would have been utterly shocked they can't believe this this is the center of worship they had just been chanting the king has come everything is being brought together for israel to be brought back to power the messiah is here david's son is here the temple's here this is it And Jesus says, no, this is not it. And they can't wrap their minds around it. And Jesus is saying, this is not it. It'll all be destroyed. And so we see the reaction. We would expect that, well, Jesus, when is this going to happen? Now, we know from here, and there's a similar passage in Matthew 24 and 1 Mark 13, that the disciples kind of thought of all of this together. Well, when the disciples, temple is destroyed that's the end it's over history is done with and yet jesus is going to show well actually the temple is going to be destroyed and then in a future date will be the end and this is one of the things that makes it challenging is how much of this happened when the temple was destroyed and how much of it's going to happen in the future and how much of it's going throughout the ages and we'll answer some of those questions as we go but nonetheless jesus is wanting them to see look when jerusalem is destroyed That is not yet the end. 
And Jesus is responding to them, not immediately by going, well, let me tell you, but he first gives some warning, saying, hey, well, you need to watch out for some things. He's going to give them some encouragement. Don't be discouraged. And in fact, he never says an exact time. He never says, well, 33 and a half years or 2,472 years. That's when it's going to happen. He gives these broad signs and some signs that aren't the end. But first in verse 8, he tells them to watch out that they're not deceived. And they could be deceived by three kind of broad things. They could be deceived by false claims of people coming and saying, well, I'm the Messiah, I've come back. And yet he says, do not believe that. Or they might be deceived by just the social chaos. There's wars, there's political change. This has to be the end. But Jesus says in verses 9 and 10, these things must take place first but the end will not be at once. You know, in most of these disciples' lives, they would go through a time when Rome in one year went from having one emperor to then four. There was fights over who was going to be controlled. There was chaos. Is this the end? And he says, no, that is not yet the end. That must happen first. They could be deceived, verse 11, by natural disasters. Oh, look, there's earthquakes. There's famines. There's all these pestilences, even heavenly terrors. This is the end. He says, no, that's not a clear indicator of the end. Now, Jesus is not just coming up with random words going, you know what, maybe I should mention natural disasters or or I should mention these other things. He's borrowing, he's using the language of the prophets. For example, Isaiah 13, 9 through 13 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And Jesus is using similar language, but the shocking thing is that verse, those verses were referring to Babylon. And Jesus is saying, well, what happened to Babylon is going to happen to Jerusalem. Because you, like Babylon, have rebelled against me. And what is said of Jerusalem will happen, but in a greater way, when Jesus comes. You know, when Jesus returns, it will be clear. There will be no doubt. Is that Jesus? I don't know. No, when he returns, there will be no question in our mind. I speak from borrowed experience here, so... Those who have experienced can contradict me later. But I get the illusion that it's like Braxton Hicks. The pre-birth pains. Oh, this is horrible. And yet it's nothing like the real labor. It looks like the real thing, but it's only warnings of what's to come. And every earthquake, every chaos, every war is a Braxton Hicks that God gives us to say, wake up. The real thing is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready for when I come back? Every single one is a reminder. This world is not the way it should be. But it will be made one day, and are you ready for that day? And thus Jesus begins his teachings on the future realities by warning, don't be deceived. Don't see every Hitler, every Hussein, and go, up oh, right here, wars in the Middle East, taking over the whole world. This is it. We can't squeeze every natural disaster into a clear revelation that the end is here. When the end is here, 
It will be clear, Jesus teaches us. But Jesus' main point here in this first section is that earthly treasures, even incredible ones, like the temple, they're going to perish. And that's our hope, our focus. It shouldn't be on them. If they are, then we're going to be destined for discouragement and despair when they are destroyed. However, Jesus has already showed them that this earthly temple is going to be destroyed. And the true lasting temple is going to rise again. You see, Jesus had been to the temple a couple of years before this. And you remember John 2, he told them, destroy this temple and in three days it will rise again. And what is Jesus talking about? Well, they didn't get it. They're like, we've already been working on this for 46 years. There's no way three days. But then Jesus says he's talking about his body, the true temple. Many of you all remember when Richie Goodrich, my friend, the missionary to Australia, was here. And he was talking about this. And he said, you know, in Ezekiel and Zechariah, the coming of the Messiah would be concurrent with God's temple, either being purified or replaced altogether with a new temple. So, for example, in Ezekiel 37, we see the Messiah at least purifying the worship at the temple. In Zechariah 6, we see the Messiah building a new temple. But what the Old Testament did not reveal, he says, was that Jesus, as the Messiah, would not just purify or even build a new temple, that the Messiah would be the new temple himself. He was God incarnate. God had come to dwell with his people, no longer in a building made of stone, but in a person. So we don't need to go to a temple because Emmanuel has come. God with us. And he promises he'll be with us always, even to the end of the age. He'll always be with us. It's interesting, as you go through the Gospels, you may have noticed that everything that was to be done at the temple was done with Jesus. They worshipped Jesus. Jesus declared people to be cleansed. Jesus was the sacrifice. Jesus restored lepers to society. And then it all climaxes at his death because what happens? The veil is torn in two. Showing that that temple is just a picture of a greater temple that has come. And so they don't need to be terrified when the temple is destroyed because that's not your hope. Your hope is risen. Your hope is in heaven where it can never be destroyed. It is imperishable. So as you look to the future, is what you place your hope in going to make it past this life? The United States might become greater, or we may fall apart, but that is not our hope. Our economy may recover, or may nosedive even farther, but that is is not our hope. Our health, it may improve or our health might deteriorate even worse. But that is not our hope. Our hope is in the resurrected King Jesus. He will never be destroyed. So is your hope firmly rooted and fixed on him? And you're probably like the disciples and probably like me where right now you're going, yes! And five minutes or 20 minutes from now or whenever this is over, you'll be driving home and you'll be singing, Jesus is my all. He's everything I need. Where are we going out to eat? I don't want to go there. Oh, my life, such a ruin. If I don't get to go to the restaurant, I want. Oh, we have to watch that. My life's over. My life stinks. 
because I didn't get the restaurant or the movie, and my hope is in, is it here or is it in Christ? Well, there's a war going on inside of us. Because the disciples, what did Jesus just told them? We'll look down. You have your headings. What happened right before this? Jesus told them, hey, don't notice all these people giving all this money to the temple. Who gave the biggest amount? The widow. And they probably all were riveted. That's right. The widow. It doesn't matter how much you have. It's if your all is given to God. And then they walk out of the temple and they go, oh, beauty. Like us, their mind, their spirit is torn back and forth between my hope is in Christ and my hope is the next gift I get. My hope is in what happens with this relationship. And it's not that we shouldn't care about those up. Who cares? No. But is our hope beyond what might happen there? Do we have a hope that is secure? And Jesus is trying to get the disciples and us, don't set your hope on things that are going to perish. Put your hope in me, the lasting temple. But Jesus now gives them a clear thing that is going to happen. We see that in verses 12 through 19 because he tells them persecution will come. Before these things, before the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus says they'll be arrested and persecuted. Those who do this, it's going to be religious people. It's going to be synagogues. It's going to be civil people. It'll be kings and governors and people in authority. And Jesus' words, they literally came true. Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged men and women and committed them to prison. Religious people arresting them. Or Acts 12, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that he pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And we could give many more examples of Jesus' disciples being arrested, persecuted, and even killed by both religious and civil authorities. Notice, though, that Jesus says there in verse 12 that they will do this for my name's sake. People are fine if you're religious. Oh, Worship God, no problem. But don't say you're worshiping only in Jesus' name. You know, in ancient Rome, they didn't care if you worshiped. Worship anything and everything as long as you will worship Caesar too. You cannot worship only in Jesus' name. Communist, atheistic countries, you could worship. We'll build a church for you. But you worship the way we tell you. You can't worship in Jesus' name only or even today people are fine you're a spiritual person ah spiritual's good it's wonderful we love spiritual people but don't say spirituality can only be found in jesus name the name of jesus alone is unbearable and that's why acts 4 the religious leaders arrest them and then they tell the disciples to speak or teach no more to anyone in the name of jesus no, no you can teach religious things all you want just don't do it in jesus name alone now this could drive them to despair well jesus you're telling us about the future we're going to be persecuted but he then tells them in verse 13 this will be an opportunity to witness you see jesus has this witness persecution plan that we can more clearly speak of him due to it and this is again what happened in acts and happens today you know as you're mocked as people treat you wrong they say well why don't you just change just just go with the flow why do you have to keep holding on to these ideas just get with society get with history well there's a name unlike any other name and by that name i'm forgiven 
By that name, I know God himself. By that name, I am made whole and I have joy in life. I can't just turn that aside so that I'm popular now. But Jesus, he's really already warned them of this before. Luke chapter 6, he said, Blessed are you when people hate you and then when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice and be glad and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Now that may seem impossible. Rejoice in the midst of coming persecution. And yet that's, again, what we see. Acts 5.41, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You know, if your hope is not fixed as Jesus was trying to show us in verses 5 through 11, if your fo- hope is not fixed in him, then you're not going to be able to suffer persecution. If your hope is only in this earth, then you're going to do whatever it takes to keep things on earth going well. And yet if your hope is in him, then you can suffer for him knowing that they can never take that hope away. But then Jesus says something very interesting. Verse 14 says, well, don't prepare for that time. Like an actor, don't walk through your lines beforehand. Don't have a pre-show where you walk through the whole play, symphony, not symphony, play, there you go. Don't do that. Don't get ready. Why is Jesus saying this? What's going on? Well, on some level, he's, tying with themes throughout the Bible. Exodus 4, when Moses is trying to squirm out of serving God, he says, Lord, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. So in Acts chapter 4, when the disciples are talking. What do the religious leaders say? They go, where did this come from? These are common, uneducated men. How can they speak like this? The Spirit empowered them. Now we have to be careful here. Here Jesus says, don't be ready to make an apologia, a defense. But then Peter's later going to write, always be ready to give a apologia, a defense. So do we not get ready or do we get ready? Well, in some level, I think we need to realize this was a unique situation for the disciples and the apostles in the early church, and that we are called to be ready, and we can't use this as an excuse. Oh, I'll just wing it. Holy Spirit's going to enter in, and they're not going to answer my questions. I got them. I don't think that's what it's teaching us. On the other hand, we can't count on our, I'm going to outstudy them. I'm going to read more websites. I'm going to read more books, and these arguments, they're not going to know what to do. We must Rest in the Spirit's power to change lives. And we must be ready, as we're told in 1 Peter 3, to give a defense for the hope that is in us. But perhaps the most challenging part is what he says in verses 16 and 17, that this hatred, this betrayal, this persecution, it's not going to be from people out there. Well, yeah, those people out there, they hate me. It's going to be from family. It's going to be from friends. It's going to be from those who love you. And so Jesus is warning that like his close friend Judas portrayed him, they will have that too. And so we must endure such things. But as I was reading, maybe you were hearing all this, and then all of a sudden, verse 18, you're like, what? You're going to die, verse 16. 
Verse 18, but not a hair will perish. You're going to die, but not a... What is he talking about? Well, again, where is your hope? He's saying you will not ultimately be destroyed. They may kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. You will be safe in his arms. If your hope is not on this earth, but in Christ, then they can never take that away. And so Jesus says, so endure. Because verse 19, by your endurance you will gain. Word for purchasing. You will acquire. You'll buy your lives. Or even you could translate it your souls. What? Hey, there's so many things in these verses that Jesus just makes us go, what are you saying? I'm gonna, I thought you purchased my soul. I thought you are you're this week, this is all about you coming to live and die for me. And yet, the only thing confusing is the way we often talk about these things. As you read the Bible, it's quite clear that yes, God gives us faith. But to those who truly know him, he continues to give faith so that you will endure to the end. That's why 1 Peter 1 verse 5 says, You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How does God preserve us? He continues to give us faith. And if at some point we go to, I do not believe, then it may have been that you never knew him in the first place. You may have felt like you did. It may have really seemed like in your emotions and your experience you knew him. But they went out from us because they were not really of us. Because if they were of us, they would not have gone out from us, the Apostle John says. So as John Piper once said, we need to keep trusting him who keeps us trusting. We must keep enduring. Well, in the fall of 1939 into the spring of 1940 Europe was looking really bleak and England's response to what was going on was bringing despair and so parliament had a vote of no confidence in prime minister Chamberlain and as you know they voted for Winston Churchill and in his first speech to parliament he said I have nothing to offer you but blood toil tears and sweat sounds a lot like Jesus here future's bleak it's going to be hard yet what we have to realize is that is not all churchill and jesus are saying they're not just saying suffering for the rest of your life they're saying they're suffering now because there's something better churchill is saying yes let's be honest let's come in i'm not going to come in and i'm going to have some magic formula and poof where europe is saved there is going to be blood it's going to be toil there's going to be tears there's going to be sweat but this will lead to victory. This will lead to a safe and free Europe. And Jesus is saying something much greater than that. He's saying, yes, the future will include those things, but you'll not have a hair harmed if you endure. Jesus is saying, look, you can take comfort because of four really important things because God is in control. You know, Jesus is telling them this is going to happen. So when it happens, they can go, you know what? This didn't catch God off guard. He told us, God is in control of this situation so I can have hope. Second, he's let us know it's going to be hard. He's let us know that this is not going to be easy. Yet, we have the hallway of faith. We have Jesus who went before us. And as we keep our eyes on the author and perfecter of faith, we can endure because of the joy that he had 
before him. Third, he's saying, God is going to take care of you. It will happen. God rewards. And lastly, he's saying, you must endure. You can't run a marathon in 26 miles. You have 0.2 to go. You've made it a long way, but if that point you go, did it. Go get some Gatorade and I'm done. You're not going to get the trophy at the end. Jesus is saying you have to run 26.2 all the way through the tape. You must run all the way. So Jesus has told them their hope must be set in him. And he's warning them, look, you've got to be ready for persecution. And now he gives them one clear indication that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And he's showing them in this that really justice is going to be served. Well, how are they going to know? Well, we see this lastly in verses 20 through 24, the third section. Justice will be served. They'll know because Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. In other words, there's going to be such an intense siege that these people, they need to respond quickly. If you're outside of the city, don't go into it. If you're already in the city, go out of it. If you're in the Judean hillside, go even farther. Go up to the mountains. Don't go to the city. What's going on? Well, normally, as you hear of an invading army, you go to the city. That's the place of safety. And Jesus is saying, now is not the time to go to the city. It's the time to go from the city. But I think we need to notice an amazing thing. Jesus is dazed couple days from his death where are you mentally and emotionally when you're a couple days from surgery a couple days from an important meeting or a couple days before an important event if you're like me my thoughts are all how's it going to work out what's going to happen am i going to make it? it's going to be hard what's going to happen me 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 and jesus he's not sitting there pining for himself oh this is going to be bad he's warning those he loves what is your future going to be like He's not sitting there focused on himself. He's focused on his people. He's showing his deep love that even as he's about to go to the cross, he's wanting them to be ready for what comes after that. And they need to realize this is all going to come because basically God is warned. This is his vengeance that was written about before. One example was Jeremiah 18, 11. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Jesus is showing them the future may be chaotic, but it's not out of control. Everything that's coming is in his hands. It will be hard. Thus, people are giving birth and nursing. It's going to be horrible for them because they won't be able to flee. And those who stay, they're going to be taken by the edge of the sword or made captives. And this city, Jerusalem, will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And this happened. Four decades, the Roman army came. They surrounded the city. They besieged it. And then in 70 AD, they breached the walls. They conquered it and they utterly destroyed it. They took all the beautiful objects off the temple and then they filled it with fire and burned it. The historian Josephus records that over a million Jews were killed and almost 100,000 were taken into captivity. The siege was so bad that one woman 
cooked her own child. And yet she didn't get to eat the whole thing because others smelled it and came and took it from her. It was going to be horrible, and it was horrible. And yet also we know from history that many Christians fled because they knew Jesus' words that when you see the army coming, do not stay. And so they fled, and they were safe. So was 70 AD the fulfillment of Jesus' words here? Or do Jesus' words here point to a future time of tribulation? And the answer, at least in my opinion, is yes. They were fulfilled in 70 AD, and they're pointing to something to come. It's both. That all of these, every one is a Braxton Hicks, as we say, of a future, even worse, that will come. And we'll look more into that next week, because Jesus goes on to talk about this. And Jesus, though, is showing that he knows the future. And yet this is where we have problems because we're, at this point, reading history and trying to understand, well, did this event in history fulfill what Jesus said? Now, we need to do that. We have to do that, but we have to be careful because we're moving into interpreting history and the Bible. You know, my own views of this were a little shaken as I was taking a Jonathan Edwards class in seminary, and I'm reading him. And he's talking about the end times. And then he says, and isn't it so clear that this is what is being talked about in the colonies here? It was so clear. Everything in the end times that's going on in the 1700s. And we look back and go, no, that wasn't it. Or Martin Luther, isn't it obvious that the Pope is not an Antichrist, but the, the Antichrist? And we go, well, no. And so we have to be, cautious as we interpret these things yes we have to read the bible with history in mind but we can't read our history into the bible we can't just say well yes there's a whoa this is it we must wait we must be cautious we must ever be on guard so we might go july sorry may 14th 1948 israel was reestablished as a nation is that hey right there the time of the gentiles is that it i don't know I don't think anyone can know, but we could read that in and go, well, this is it. Well, Jesus is saying, be faithful until that time. We don't know if this event or that is, but when he comes, there will be no doubt. But there is one thing that's clear, and Jesus is showing that justice will be done. And yet many read the Bible and they go, ugh, Jesus just had some pretty harsh words there. I mean, haven't we moved from seeing a God who judges and has wrath to a God who's loving and kind and the answer on love one level is yes we have as a society we've moved to seeing god as kind of a permissive omnibenevolent grandfather who kind of sees you doing wrong and when you look up kind of winks and goes i know what you're doing but don't worry i won't tell mom you're not in trouble and yet here we see from scripture that jesus does not believe that god and he is not that type of god keith read for us earlier in the service what did Jesus do when he came to Jerusalem? He wept. Because he knew the destruction that was going to come. Because they did not see, realize the time of visitation. What does he mean? He, they did not realize that Jesus was the Messiah, that he'd come. You just think about what we've seen in Luke over the last long time. As we've studied through it, Jesus has healed the sick. He has cleansed lepers. He's forgiven sinners. He's cast out demons. He's calmed storms. He's brought the dead back to life. And the religious leaders and the Israelites go, eh, we're not sure. 
Is this, is this God's Messiah? Wait, 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 wait. Could you do something else? Healing, a, bringing someone back from the dead? Eh, yeah, anybody could do that. No, not anybody can do that. Jesus has showed them time and again. He's pleaded with them time and again. He wept here. He then, as we saw the last couple weeks, pleaded with them, this parable of the vineyard, come now or you'll be crushed or you can build your life on me. How should God respond when he sends his only son so that this wrath might be averted and they go, no, we're just going to kill you so we can have it. He should respond in justice. God is fair and right. And even beyond that, though we may cry, oh, we want a God of love, there's something in every one of us that goes, but justice must be served. Even this last week, how has almost everyone responded to George Floyd's murder? Justice. They must be arrested. They must be condemned. They must be charged with murder. He should pay. He deserves judgment. There is this clear cry there is this clear desire for justice and yet without a martin luther king jr to cry for a peaceful response what do we do we must get justice ourselves when we stop to believe in a god of justice we don't stop wanting justice we start demanding i will make it just i will do whatever is necessary so that this is made right And yet Jesus is showing us justice will one day come. But what about you? You We can get angry at police officers who abuse their power, and we should. We can rage at politicians who use their position to milk the system so they get extra benefits, and we should. But what about our thoughts, our actions, all the things that we've done? Is justice going to be served for those and jesus is here showing there's a hope there's a living hope because i came i'm the temple i came to be emmanuel god with us so that you might be restored so that you don't need to face this judgment because i will take it myself james boyce recounts that in the summer of 1939 donald gray barnhouse famous pastor was preaching in scotland and he was on a big tour, he was preaching, and then he planned a break to go with his family to Normandy Beach, you may have heard of that beach, in France. It's a true story. And so he went, and he got on a plane, and as he was about to fly over, they said, we're not sure you should go, we're not sure flights are going to come back. He said, oh, you know, those things are in the distance, oh, they're not going to happen. So he flew, and he went with his family, and he went to Normandy Beach, and they had a great time, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Thursday, they got news, no more flights back to England. You want to go back, you must take a train immediately to Paris. And from Paris, you may take a train immediately to the coast. And then you must take a boat to get across. And so they realize, we've got to do it. And they took a train to Paris. And the closer they get, the more soldiers started getting on the train. And then as they got to Paris, he got the last train out to the beach. And then as he got to the beach, he got the last steamer back to the England. And then in England, he is seeing as he's taking cabs and trains and ships to get over to England, Ireland, he's seeing children being sent alone to go off to farms and them weeping as they have no parents. They seeing couples bawling as one saying goodbye to the other. And then finally he gets to his preaching destination, Belfast, Ireland, at three in the morning. And the people, the committee that meets him, they say, 
tomorrow, 11 o'clock, Prime Minister Chamberlain, he's going to make an announcement. Uh, so you, we hope you have a really good sermon because this might be the last one these men hear. So Barnhouse, he prayed. He made some notes. He slept. He woke, and then as he got there to the service, he was thinking, hey, there's not going to be many people here. You know, they're all going to be listening to the prime minister. Yet the church was packed. It wasn't an empty seat. And so what did he preach on? He began by reading, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. And then Barnhouse, he recounted his last few days. He told them of the soldiers getting on. He told them of the children torn apart from their families, of couples being split up. And he said, do not be troubled. He then walked through the potential horrors of millions of homes losing a husband. Do not be troubled. Of children becoming orphans. Do not be troubled. And then he paused and he said, are these the words of a madman or are they the words of God? Because how could someone say, there's going to be wars, you're going to lose your life. Do not be troubled. How can they say, children are going to be made orphans. Do not be troubled. You can only say that unless you're a madman or you're God. And Barnhouse went on, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. Jesus Christ is the God of detailed circumstances. Nothing has ever happened that did not flow in the channel that God dug for it. No event has ever flamed up in spite of God or left him astonished, bewildered, or confused. He is our God. You know, the sin of men has left this world an arena of passion and fury. Like wild beasts, we tear at each other's throats. Yet in the midst of history of which Jesus Christ is Lord, every individual who's believed in him as Savior and Lord will know the power of the resurrection and will learn that events, however terrible, can't separate us from the love of God. Do not be troubled. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are not facing a war like Barnhouse and the men and women sitting there, but we have our own troubles. We have the Braxton Hicks that we experience in this life, and Lord, we are troubled. Would you restore to us our hope? Would you get our eyes off our circumstances here and firmly fixed on you? Lord, may we be people of hope knowing that the future is not some chaotic uncertainty, but it is firmly in your hands. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.